and I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, saying, Come and see. Thunder Radio with Christian J. Pento. Okay, praise the Lord, you guys, and welcome. I'm Chris Pinto. This is Noise of Thunder Radio. Today on the show, we are going to talk about what is going on with the fires in Maui. Uh, There's stories all over the news. This is something that is, at a personal level, kind of near and dear to my wife and I because we got married in Northern California almost 20 years ago this year. And uh, we got married up in Carmel, and then we took our honeymoon in Maui, and we were in Lahaina. And we have a lot of pictures and a lot of memories and uh, we had a, a very blessed time, thank the Lord, while we were there. And so finding out that Maui was being consumed by all these fires was, for us, kind of heartbreaking. We've talked for years about wanting to go back to Maui and, and to bring our children now and, and show them all the places that we went, uh, take the road to Hannah and so on. And now, of course, all of that has changed because this fire, this wildfire that is just beyond even the fires in California that you see every year. Now, we lived out there. I lived out there for almost 10 years, and that's where my wife and I got married. But we used to have a house in the foothills right on the edge of San Fernando, and we could see the foothills in the distance from our neighborhood. And every year, we would see the fires and the smoke in the foothills because foothills would burn to a certain extent every year when it would get very, very dry during the summertime. And we had friends that lived out in Simi Valley, which is where our home church was, who had a couple of close calls while we were there where the fires got so bad they would move in close to their neighborhoods. And of course, the firefighters Uh, In fact, we've got one of our uh, good friends from the church was a firefighter, and he appears in one of our films. He also did some acting for us. I won't tell you who he was because I don't want to embarrass him. But anyway, uh, was a firefighter out there. So this is a situation that we have some familiarity with because we saw it every year in California. But the fires would get bad at times, but then they were always able to contain them sooner or later. What didn't make a lot of sense to me was the complete and total devastation of what was going on in Maui when you're on an island there surrounded by water and they've got to have resources to tap into that water. Well, now, of course, we're finding out, as many of you have been learning through the news and articles and so on, that things are not all that they seem to be with this situation in Maui. Uh, This whole thing appears to be some kind of a setup where the globalists, the environmentalists, and the people who are part of that movement, it appears, 
have done this deliberately or allowed it to happen deliberately. Exactly how it came about, I think people are still trying to figure out. But there's all kinds of strange details, things about the ordinary alarms that were supposed to be set off were not set off. The water was strangely cut off and unavailable to put out the fire. You're, you're on an island surrounded by water, but there's no water that anybody can use to put out these fires. Uh, the police, reports of the police uh, blocking certain parts of the city so that people couldn't get out. There's all kinds of strange things that went on, and there's going to be undoubtedly investigations that are going to go on for months in the aftermath, of it, probably years in the aftermath. Some of the most disturbing stories that are being told is now you have these homeowners who had insurance on their homes, and now their homes are burned to the ground. They're calling their insurance companies. Their insurance companies are telling them that because of zoning laws that had been passed, their homes are not insured. Or they're insured, rather, but the insurance companies are saying they're not going to, to cover the claim because apparently the zoning laws have somehow or other changed the status of their insurance policies, which means the homeowners now don't have any way to rebuild their homes because their insurance is not going to be able to do it or won't do it. Uh, and so that means they're put in a position, many of them, where they're going to have no choice but to sell the property to some investor. And all of these investors are swooping down and trying to buy up the land and the properties now, uh, presumably because they think they can get it for a lot less money. And uh, then they're going to be uh, able to rebuild or invest or whatever it is that they're going to do. And once Maui and Lahaina in particular are rebuilt, that property, whatever it is, the new, the brand new state of the art homes and neighborhoods, et cetera, are going to be worth a fortune, quite frankly. This is why the investors want them. Now, people suspect that the environmentalists are in on this. If this is all part of some, you know, they're, they're going to create one of their smart cities, one of these 15-minute cities. If you go back to one of the early programs that I did this year with the new year on the 15-minute cities, that is something people have been predicting that they want to do. And it is a very real part of this globalist agenda to have these cities where the people who live in a city will be able to, um, to get whatever resources they need within a 15-minute radius. That's the idea. And so that you'll be able to walk or ride your bike and that kind of thing. You won't have to take a car. But people suspect that what's going to happen is those 15-minute cities are going to become really kind of quarantine areas where they're going to control people's ability to travel. They're not going to let you go outside of your 15-minute city, but so many times. They're going, to, they're going to use it to try and regulate people's travel, communication, your ability to simply move about freely. And we've all seen what can happen with that with these COVID lockdowns that uh, began back in 2020. Right now, there are many people who are predicting that they're going to bring back the COVID regulations through September and October. And if you don't know about that, you should look into it. They've already started at some of the colleges and the universities requiring masks. Uh, they're pushing booster shots and things like this, which they backed off of for a while. 
because of all the people who, who ended up with blood clots and myocarditis, etc. But now apparently they're getting ready to make another push this fall. And we've all got to be on the alert with this because if the people collectively say, no, they're not going to cooperate, if, if you have whole populations refusing to cooperate with these lockdowns, etc., it's going to be very, very difficult for them to enforce these lockdowns. And it's already been shown that the pandemic was really a plandemic, a scamdemic, that the whole thing was a setup. There was no real pandemic. And this uh, vaccine that they've given people is very, very dangerous. It was untested. Many people have been harmed and killed because of it. And of course, there's a um, lot of material out there, a lot of, you know, a lot of scientists, doctors, medical professionals talking about these things. Uh, but we're not going to go over those details today. I did want to point out, though, uh, there's some circumstantial evidence that's highly suspicious. You have Governor Josh Green, who is the governor of Hawaii. And just one month earlier, on July 5th, the Office of the Governor news release, Governor Green enacts laws to promote clean energy future. And this was uh, just one month before the fires began. It says Governor Josh Green signed several bills into law to help combat climate change and work towards the state's zero emission goal of 100% clean energy by 2045. Okay, so you've got people who suspect that this has something to do with these fires, that it's the uh, the green agenda that's really what's behind this. In fact, here's a quote from this article from, again, Governor Josh Green, quote, this bill will move Hawaii towards zero emissions from land, sea and air transportation. Okay, so that's the plan. Well, what better way to do that than to destroy everything that's there and then rebuild it and make sure that everything is eco-friendly? And this is what and of course, you've got the conspiracy theorists are saying this is what's really behind the agenda in Maui. This is why they did it. That this didn't happen accidentally. This is deliberate, the deliberate destruction of the beautiful city of Lahaina and the surrounding areas and so on. Um, that's the argument. Now, of course, you've, you've got the fact checkers that are rushing out to deny all of this and say, no, there's no evidence of it, etc. But the hard proof, I think, is going to emerge over time. Right now, what people are dealing with, from what I can tell, is a lot of circumstantial evidence and the testimonies of the people there, really heartbreaking testimonies of the people who live in Maui. And they're watching what happened. They've seen their homes destroyed, their neighborhoods destroyed. Uh, they're, they're being forbidden from going back to their homes in many cases to try and see if they can salvage anything. Then you have the issue of the people who are missing, more than a thousand people missing, many of them children. Here's one headline that says many uh, from the Hill, this is from the Hill, 
says many children likely among the 850 people still missing in Maui wildfires. So people are asking questions, what has happened to these children? And uh, at least some of the people on the ground were saying that the parents uh, were at work, their kids were in the schools. And so when they tried to go rescue their kids, they weren't able to find them. And so, I mean, this is really very, very frightening for anybody who's a parent to think about such a thing. Uh, and so we just hope and we pray that these kids will be recovered and that the families will be reconciled. But another issue that people are talking about are the homes that were not destroyed, that in some cases the houses of the rich were protected while the surrounding areas were completely destroyed. And the devastation, as many of you have already seen, looking at the video and the uh, photographs and so on, the devastation is complete in certain areas. I mean, just everything brought to ruin. Well, one of the interesting stories is something that the Jesuits over at America Magazine are calling a miracle. Or they're saying it's like a miracle. Survival of Catholic Church seen as a sign of hope amid Maui wildfire. Okay, so apparently uh, a Catholic church, the name of which translates as, quote, Our Lady of Victory. Our Lady of Victory, celebrating the Virgin Mary, the Catholic Mary, undoubtedly. Uh, here's a quote from an article they have in America Magazine, and it's uh, they're quoting Monsignor Terence Watanabe. We're going to hear from him here in just a second, but I'm going to read this quote first. First, it says, uh, quote, The blaze burned Lahaina to the ground in the deadliest natural disaster in Hawaii's history and the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than a century. Quote, When we saw the news and saw the church steeple rise above the town, it was a great sight to see, the priest said in an interview with the Honolulu Star Advertiser Daily Newspaper, August 10th. It was a great sight to see that the, uh, that the Catholic Church there survived. So let's listen to some audio from an interview with this priest, Monsignor Terence Watanabe. Here's what he says. Listen. They really see this as a incredible miracle, so to speak. Right behind the church um, is the convent and the preschool and two two uh, classroom, uh, two school buildings plus the parish hall, and all of that burned. The church and the rectory next door to the church did not burn. And Father Kuikose, who was the pastor there, went into uh, the church um, two days after, and the inside of the church, nothing is touched. There's no damage. And the even greater thing was the fact that there were flowers at the foot of the altar, and those flowers were not withered from the heat. Uh, you know, spiritually, we always, you know, look for uh, the presence of God in our world, whether it's a rainbow or whether, you know, it's other people's loving love for us or whatever. You know, we always, it's nice to know that God is with us and that his love and his presence is there. Okay, so remember, this is a church that translates into Our Lady of Victory, the name of the church, Our Lady of Victory. So this would give, if, if this were a miracle for Catholics, 
uh, this will be a sign that, yes, the Virgin Mary was watching over this church. Uh, We find it interesting, though, with all the strange details going on, and many people are blaming the environmentalists. They're arguing that really this is an environmentalist sabotage of the island of Maui and the city of Lahaina in particular. All right, so now we want to remind people that back in 2015, Pope Francis issued his environmental encyclical, his environmental encyclical called Laudato Si, right? On the care of our common home. Laudato Si, mi Signore, praise be to you, my Lord. I'm reading this off the Vatican website. And that's what the phrase Laudato Si means. It means praise be to you. So, but then it goes on to talk about the environment, goes on to talk about Mother Earth, etc., and how humanity has abused Mother Earth, and on and on and on. The whole environmentalist worldview is what's being communicated in the flowery Jesuitical language of Rome and the papacy. Uh, Now, remember, an encyclical is the highest form of papal writing. So when the Pope issues an encyclical, it's like he's issuing a papal command for the world around him. And while not everybody's necessarily going to take that seriously, we can bet the Jesuits most certainly do take it very seriously. They and those who work with and for them. Uh, will take it very seriously. And what it does is it empowers the entire environmentalist agenda. And I think really shows that Rome is the point at the end of the spear where global environmentalism is concerned. So it'll be very interesting to watch how events unfold with this terrible tragedy in Maui. There's lots of suspicious evidence, but uh, to figure out fully what's happened... Well, one other detail I wanted to point out while we're at it. Uh, When did this happen? This began, the fires began on August the 8th. Now, August the 8th also has another significant date. In In fact, there's a lot of events that happened on August the 8th that are worth mentioning. I'm just going to mention the fact that President Harry Truman, August 8th, 1945, signed the United Nations Charter. And we know that the U.N. has everything to do with the environmentalist agenda. Could there be a connection? Quite possibly. But admittedly, there are a number of very significant events that all happened on August the 8th. We don't have time to go over them all on the program today. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to our commercial break. When we come back, we are going to talk about this song, Rich Men North of Richmond, and its symbolism. And I'm going to do a follow-up on our last program about the, uh, the movie Sound of Freedom and respond to some of your comments when we come back from the break right after this. Dullam Films presents a stunning new documentary, The True Christian History of America, exploring the Bible-based Christian origins of the early American view of freedom, tracing the principles of liberty back to England and the Great Reformation. 
For many years, our schools have taught that the founding of our Republic was from the Deists or the Enlightenment in France. But is that truly the case? Did the Enlightenment first declare no taxation without representation or trial by jury? Were they the champions of freedom of speech or of the press or the right to bear arms? And why did Samuel Adams declare that the reign of political Protestantism would commence just before signing the Declaration of Independence? Filmed on location in both the United States and Europe, the true Christian history of America is now available at adullamfilms.com. That's adullamfilms.com. Now available at noiseofthunderradio.com. That's noiseofthunderradio.com. Adullam Films presents an exciting new documentary, Bridge to Babylon, part three in an award-winning series on the untold history of the Bible. Dr. Jack Moorman calls it a masterful presentation of what is the single most important issue facing Christians today, the defense of the Bible as the Word of God. Why was the Bible changed in 1881? Why have so many churches abandoned biblical inerrancy? And what direction are scholars taking the scriptures today? Learn the truth in Bridge to Babylon, the sequel to A Lamp in the Dark and Tares Among the Wheat. Bridge to Babylon is now available at noiseofthunderradio.com. That's noiseofthunderradio.com. Noise of Thunder Radio. Okay, we are back. Praise the Lord, you guys. I'm Chris Pinto. This is Noise of Thunder Radio. That was Oliver Anthony and his song, Rich Men North of Richmond, which has been this viral sensation all over the Internet. Really very incredible how this thing went, not just all over the country, but around the world. Uh, If you were to go online and go to YouTube and just look up this song and then look up the commentaries, the, the reaction videos, as they call them online, look up the reaction videos for Oliver Anthony and rich men North of Richmond. You will find, I mean, I don't even think you can count them up, uh, but there appear to be hundreds, possibly thousands of reaction videos from people all over the country and around the world, different countries, foreign countries, People are relating to this song uh, about the rich men north of Richmond and and the really what the what the songwriter, this country singer, is singing about, in my opinion. He's singing about the ill effects of globalism at work in our country and 
around the world. It's why so many people are affected by it. It's why so many people are uh, often moved to tears when they're listening to this song. Because if you listen to the whole thing, and I didn't play the whole thing, obviously, I'm just playing a short section of it. Uh, but Oliver Anthony is a professing Christian. He, in other videos, he reads from the Bible and he has faith in God, according to the Bible, as near as we can tell. He does appear to be a Christian man, but he's been very forthright and very, seems to be very sincere about his testimony. I think he is. I don't have any reason to think otherwise, but that he's, he's gone through some hard times himself and he struggled with different things. Uh, and he said he wrote this song and he put it out there as, as, you know, kind of a, a way to get a load off his chest, as it were, just things that he was struggling with. And it resonated with millions and millions of people. It's just unbelievable. But who are the rich men north of Richmond? Well, it's an obvious reference to Washington, D.C. and our federal government. Our question is, however, here at Noise of Thunder Radio, who are the handlers? Who are the puppeteers who are manipulating the rich men north of Richmond? And uh, you could, for me, I could call it the deep state north of Richmond, uh, because there's no question that our government is being manipulated by hidden powers. And we're going to show that to you when you see our new film, American Jesuits. We are going to prove this to you in a way that is fully documented, fully admitted by leading experts who have worked inside the United States government, not just our speculation from some conspiracy theory, documented evidence that you can prove, you can point to, you could take your friends, your family member and say, look at this, look at that, look at that, etc. And we're going to draw lines to the Jesuit order in no uncertain way. And you're going to see that our deep state, the CIA, these hidden powers are essentially controlled by that order that has been called the Gestapo of the Roman Catholic Church. And what I find very interesting is that part of the reason the CIA exists is because during World War II, when the OSS was established, when the OSS, the OSS operated during the Second World War through Wild Bill Donovan, who was a very high-ranking Knight of Malta and servant of the Pope, and as the war came to an end, there were those who were saying words to the effect that the OSS had become or was in danger of becoming the American Gestapo. That's what they were calling the OSS because they were involved in, there were things that they did that were heroic and served the cause of the war. But there are other things like, uh, I mean, the assassination of General Patton. There are many people who blame the OSS and Wild Bill Donovan for the death of General George S. Patton. Of course, that's not the official story, but neither was the, the death of John F. Kennedy officially claimed by the CIA until recently. And to be careful, we can't say that the CIA has officially acknowledged that but you've got people like RFK Jr. and many others, uh, Ron Paul, 
uh, and and what what they're revealing now. I mean, Tucker Carlson, right before he was kicked off Fox News, did a story about how people are starting to admit behind the scenes that, yes, the CIA assassinated John F. Kennedy. Go watch Tucker Carlson's program on this. Watch Megyn Kelly's interview with RFK Jr., where they're openly talking about the belief that, yes, the CIA killed John F. Kennedy. So then the question becomes, who runs the CIA? And we're going to show you this in our upcoming film. This has everything to do with those rich men north of Richmond, because those rich men are not just making decisions on their own. They are obviously front men for hidden powers behind the scenes. And what's remarkable is that so few people in the Christian community, especially your Protestant evangelical community, people are generally clueless about the Counter-Reformation and what's going on. And this is what I talked about in part when uh, I did my film review of the movie The Sound of Freedom, which we're going to talk about now. But some of the strange comments that we got online were to the effect of arguing about Roman Catholicism and Mormonism. Those were the comments to, in general. And basically arguing that if you gave a favorable review of the film Sound of Freedom, or if you thought it was a good idea that this film was produced to raise awareness about human trafficking, etc., and to make people aware of what's going on, that somehow or other that was an endorsement of Roman Catholicism or of Mormonism, which is really an absurd argument, if you just think about it. It is an absurd argument. And I'm going to give you a comparison. We're going to talk here in a minute about the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells in the New Testament. And then I'm going to do a comparison between the sound of freedom versus the passion of the Christ and why I, f I feel very differently about both of those films. And I'm going to tell you why. In the sound of freedom, you don't have any promotion of Roman Catholicism or of Mormonism. So these people who are going online and they want to expose the secret symbolism of Mormonism or Catholicism and this kind of thing as though anybody's promoting that through Sound of Freedom is just illogical and unreasonable. It's a film about events concerning human trafficking. That's what it's about. The Passion of the Christ, on the other hand, is undoubtedly promoting Roman Catholicism, a Roman Catholic view of the New Testament, which the makers of the film openly admit in no uncertain way. And I'm going to prove that to you by the end of this program as well. Furthermore, if you listened to the review that I did, the film review, if you actually listened to the program all the way through, then you would have known that I don't just do a review of the film and talk about trafficking and whatnot. But I also confront Jim Kavitzel and Steve Bannon, who interviewed Kavitzel, uh, and Mel Gibson, for that matter, because all three of these men are promoting the film Sound of Freedom. 
and bringing awareness to the issue of human trafficking, which I believe is a very good, noble thing that they are doing in that regard. But I believe they need to take it a step further unless they've already done so, and they should confront the Jesuits at Georgetown University. Now, I'll give you a Jesuit connection to Mel Gibson and Jim Kavitzel, the the guy that Mel Gibson contacted to do the translation from Aramaic into English for the subtitles of Passion of the Christ was a Jesuit. They had a Jesuit priest that translated from Aramaic into English for the subtitles of the film. And initially, if you go study the film, The Passion, uh, Mel Gibson was going to release the film in Aramaic, but with no subtitles at all. People would just be watching and listening. They wouldn't be able to actually read the specific words, but most people know the general storyline. So that was going to be Gibson's, that was his original idea. But then he was convinced to add the subtitles, and so he brought in this Jesuit priest who did the translation from Aramaic into English. So because of that, they could definitely uh, confront or at least communicate with the Jesuits at Georgetown University. I'm sure they would take the time to listen to Mel Gibson and, uh, and, and Jim Kavitzel both and say to them, hey, guys, uh, one, it's at Georgetown University at the Edmund Walsh School of Foreign Service. That's where they train the people who go to work for the CIA and the FBI, etc. Those three-letter organizations that Jim Kavitzel made reference to in his interview that I played on the last program. You'll have to listen to the last show. But he believes those three-letter organizations, as he said to Steve Bannon, are somehow or other involved with this human trafficking. So why not confront or reach out to the Jesuits at Georgetown and talk to them about it? That would be one thing. Another thing, the Jesuits have this Islamic Muslim professor, Jonathan Brown, that I've mentioned before, who openly teaches that slavery and rape are acceptable because they were practiced by the Prophet Muhammad. Why don't they confront the Jesuits about, hey guys, why do you have this guy at Georgetown teaching this? And because the problem of human trafficking is such an important problem and it involves kidnapping and enslaving these kids and turning them into sex slaves, how could it be a good thing that they've got this guy there teaching slavery and rape on behalf of Islam? You see, this would be a great opportunity for them to confront what I believe is something very dangerous going on at one of the leading universities in our country a Catholic institution, Georgetown University, and they're teaching that slavery and rape are perfectly acceptable. Do you think that's helping the problem of human trafficking or making it worse? I'd ask him that question. I'd ask Mel Gibson that question. I'd ask Steve Bannon that question because that's a legitimate question. But let's talk about these other issues. Let's talk about uh, Kavitzel as a Catholic and Tim Ballard as a Mormon. Now, we used to carry, well, we carry documented, we carry DVDs on our website. Catholicism, A Crisis of Faith. We carry Dave Hunt's A Woman Rides the Beast. 
You go online to Amazon. We've got our film, A Lamp in the Dark, The Untold History of the Bible. And uh, we get all of these. We get we get a lot of very favorable reviews about Lamp. But we also get people who give us one-star reviews and accuse us of anti-Catholic bigotry because we are going over the history of the Church of Rome, where the Bible is concerned. So, yes, we have taken a stand here for many years on the issue of Romanism and Jesuitism, and we continue to do so. But we don't forget the biblical examples that were given. Because discernment, brothers and sisters, is not just having conspiracy theories about what you think is going on behind the scenes. That's not necessarily discernment. True discernment happens from a biblical perspective, to use the Bible as the lens for our worldview. So where else in the Bible, because what you have is the objection is not to what the guys are doing in the film. In the film, they're you have agents of government based generally, not specifically on actual events. They've admitted, and Tim Ballard has admitted, that there is some dramatic license going on with a screenplay and stuff like that. So the events are generally true, but they've taken some liberties in different areas. And there's a whole list of those things where there's a website called History versus Hollywood, I think that's the name. But you can look it up there and go read about where they deviated from truthful information and where they took dramatic license and stuff like that. And Tim Ballard has been very open about that. But the the general storyline and, and the subject matter is true. Human trafficking is a real problem. And it's something that we talked about in our film, The Kinsey Syndrome. And I believe it's a very important issue. And I think creating uh, unnecessary distractions rather than seeing an opportunity to, to magnify an issue and hopefully get some kind of help for the hundreds of thousands and some say millions of children out there who are being trafficked and, and being subjected to horrible circumstances. I mean, I just feel like we should focus on the greater issues. And yes, there's plenty of time to talk about Mormonism and Roman Catholicism. And I'm going to cover some of that here in a minute. Let's talk about the story of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. So Jesus says this in verse 30. He says, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Notice, a priest, a supposed holy man, who's supposedly an expert in theology, sees the guy laying on the side of the road, and he passes by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite. Well, now another priest, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. So now you have two priests, you have two guys who are supposedly experts in theology, and they see this man who's been beaten up by thieves and left for dead, and they just look at him and keep walking. 
Verse 33, Jesus continues, he says, But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where it was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. Okay? And so then uh, Jesus says, Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. Now, when Jesus mentions the good Samaritan, do we realize why he's mentioning the Samaritan in particular? Well, if you study the history of Samaria, going back to the days of Jeroboam, generations earlier, uh, the Samaritans departed from the more pure faith of Judah in the south. Samaritans were in the north. And Jeroboam set up an alternative temple there, and they had these two calves that they worshipped. And apparently they were worshipping the Lord on the one hand, and worshiping these calves at the same time. And this corruption continued in Samaria. Then you had the northern tribes that were carried away captive, and then they were replaced by these heathen that were brought in, and then there were other Jews that were brought in among them. And uh, the scripture says that they worshiped the Lord, as in the Lord God of Israel, but they also worshiped their pagan gods. And this pagan corruption of worshiping, on the one hand, really mingling Judaism with pagan idol worship, that continued for generations and was still going on in the time of Jesus. If you go and read commentaries on all of this, uh, where, for example, when in John chapter 4, verse 22, when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well, and he says to her, ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The reason he says to her, ye worship, ye know not what, is because the Samaritans had a mixed up, paganized worship. Okay, let me read you a quote here from Barnes' Notes on the Bible. Uh, Barnes says, uh, ye worship, ye know not what. This probably refers to the comparative ignorance and corruption of the Samaritan worship. Though they received the five books of Moses, yet they rejected the prophets. And of course, all that the prophets had said respecting the true God. Originally, also, they had joined the worship of idols to that of the true God. See 2 Kings 17, 26 through 34. They had, moreover, no authority for building their temple and conducting public worship by sacrifices there. On all these accounts, they were acting in an unauthorized manner. They were not obeying the true God, nor offering the worship which he had commanded or would approve. So that's one example. Then if we go to Gill's exposition of the entire Bible, Gill says about the Samaritans, he says, the original inhabitants of those parts 
from whence these Samaritans sprung, were idolatrous heathens, placed by the king of Assyria in the room of the ten tribes he carried away captive. And these feared not the Lord, for they knew not the manner of the God of the land. Wherefore lions were sent among them, which slew many of them. Upon which the king of Assyria ordered a priest to be sent to instruct them. But notwithstanding this, they had every one gods of their own, some one and some another, and so served diverse graven images, they and their children, and their children's children, to the time of the writer of the book of Kings. And though after Manasseh and other Jews were come among them, and they had received the law of Moses, they might have some knowledge of the true God, yet they glorified him not as God. And though they might in words profess him, yet in works they denied him. And even after this, they are very highly charged by the Jews with idolatrous practices on this mount. Sometimes they say, the Kuthites or Samaritans worshipped fire. And at other times, and which chiefly prevails among them, they assert that their wise men, upon searching, found that they worshipped the image of a dove on Mount Gerizim. And sometimes, they say, they worshipped the idols, the strange gods, or teraphim, which Jacob hid under the oak in Sichem. Which last, if true, may serve to illustrate these words of Christ, that they worshipped they knew not what, since they worshipped idols hid in the mount. So that's two commentaries to give you an idea of what the worship of the Samaritans was. The, the Samaritans, on the one hand, they professed that they worshipped the true God, meaning they did acknowledge the God of Moses, God of the Old Testament. But they also mingled that with the worship of idols. Now, the reason I bring that up, brothers and sisters, is because the ancient Samaritans are very, very similar to Roman Catholics today. Very similar. And I think you could probably make the same argument about Mormonism. Roman Catholics profess faith in Jesus Christ, and they profess faith in the Bible as the Word of God, many of them. But back to our story here about the Good Samaritan, why does Jesus tell this story to the people of that time. Why does he go out of his way to point out two religious experts? Because that's what the priests would have been. They would have been those who were supposedly experts in the jots and tittle of the law. And yet, whatever their expert knowledge was, it did not compel them to have compassion on a person who was there on the side of the road who had been set upon by thieves. You see, the Apostle Paul says that the end of the law is love. The end, the conclusion of the law, the purpose of the law, what the law is supposed to be compelling us toward, as Jesus said, is to love God and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's the whole conclusion. That's Jesus says there's two great commands. Love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two precepts, hang all the law and the prophets. So of, of what value is it to have all of this theological knowledge and expertise and all the rest of it if it does not compel you to reach out 
to those who are in need. And the fact that the experts in the law walk by. But here you have a Samaritan who's despised by the Jews. Why? Well, because he's an idolater. Because, yeah, he has faith in the God of Moses, kind of. But he's got it all mixed up with all of these idols and paganism that's mingled in. And he's just totally confused. Remember, Jesus says to the Samaritan woman at the well, woman, you worship, you know not what. He probably would have said the same thing to that good Samaritan. But ask yourself the question, if you had been there 2,000 years ago and you heard Jesus tell the story of the good Samaritan, would you have thought that he was trying to promote paganism by mentioning a good Samaritan that does a good deed towards somebody who needed help? Remember, there were those who accused Jesus of being a deceiver. If you read John chapter 7 and verse 12, it says, And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said he is a good man. Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Was Jesus deceiving the people when he told them the story of the Good Samaritan? Was he trying to get them to accept the idea of the idols of Samaria? No, obviously not. Nowhere in the story of the Good Samaritan does he point out the, the, the Samaritan going to worship before some pagan god and then trying to commend the pagan god. That's not part of the storyline, is it? And in the same way, the storyline of the movie Sound of Freedom is not in any way promoting Roman Catholicism. It's not promoting Mormonism. It's not promoting any of that. Now, let me give you a, a, a contrast. Let me give you a contrast. Let's talk about Jim Kavitzel's other film that he was originally very famous for, The Passion of the Christ. Now, with that film, I would not see it the same way, and I did not see it the same way, because there is no question that Mel Gibson's The Passion was promoting a very Roman Catholic version of Jesus and their view of the New Testament. In fact, it's not really based on the New Testament. There are elements of the New Testament that are there, but the inspiration apparently was a work called The Dolores Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ, which had to do with the visionary experiences of a woman named Anne Catherine Emmerich. Emmerich, who was beatified by Pope John Paul II, my understanding is she's not yet been made an official Roman Catholic saint, but beatification is a step right before canonization, before they, they canonize her and declare her to be a saint. Uh, so, but that's, that was largely the inspiration. And she's called a penitent, Marian visionary, and stigmatist, Anne Catherine Emmerich. And you can look that up. That's, that's actually very well known. But there's no question, there's a very strong Roman Catholic overtone to the film The Passion. Now, where Jim Kavitzel is concerned, I like Jim Kavitzel. I like him as a person who seems like a genuine man who has faith in God. 
I would argue he has a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Much like Paul, the apostle said of the the Jewish people 2000 years ago, he has a zeal for God, or he said they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I think the same is true with Jim Caviezel. Uh, He is misguided in some of his theology, and I'm going to play you some audio clips here. Well, let me play first. This is from an interview that Jim Caviezel gave concerning the film, The Sound of Freedom. And when he's giving the interview, he's talking to a Catholic interviewer who's Latino, and he's talking about the film, and you're going along, and you're listening, and everything sounds perfectly acceptable until you get to the very end. And at the very end, that's where the reporter asks him uh, if he has a message for the pedophiles, who are obviously the villains in this film. Here it is. Listen. Jim, why did you accept this this character in this movie? Because it was an extraordinary script. Uh, because they had phenomenal filmmakers. Uh, but but it, but the most important thing is that I thought that we could shed a light on something that was so evil. That needs to end now. Um, the mothers and fathers need to wake up and to start protecting their children. Um, you know, when I would came, come back filming this, um, people would say, oh, I don't want to hear this. And I said, I'm not the trafficker and I'm not hurting your kids. They are. I'm just trying to teach you and tell you that you need to know the warning signs. And, that's what great makes this film great is that when you watch it, you get to see the warning signs. It's a lot of adventure, you'll laugh, you, but because it's a it's a great film, um, and but it, most mostly, uh, you know, I, I always felt like like the Passion of the Christ. I wanted to make films that could change people's hearts, you know. And we're very grateful for the Passion of the Christ. We love it being a Catholic radio station. Thank you for that. Thank you for doing a movie that is gonna bring awareness to people, to parents. What message do you have for the pedophiles? Look out, look out, look out. My mother, Our Lady of Guadalupe, is coming for you. Thank you, Jim. Okay, so there you heard uh, Jim Kavitzel when asked uh, what message he had for the uh, villains who prey upon kids. He warned them about... Our Lady of Guadalupe. And this, I mean, this just fits in with those who are part of what is called the cult of the Blessed Virgin in the church, meaning in the Catholic church. And that that term, just so you know, that is the term that they use in Vatican Council too, the cult of the Blessed Virgin. That's how it reads. And you can go look that up. You don't have to take my word for it. But it is called a cult. And much as I hate to say it, Jim Kavitzel is part of the Marian cult in the Catholic Church. Now, this does not necessarily apply to all Catholics, because not all Catholics believe that Mary is the one. You see, Mariolaters believe that Mary is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. That Mary is the one who ultimately is the salvation of the world. That is what a, a, a Mariolater believes. Now, not all Catholics believe that. I remember when I was raised Catholic, that's not what we believed when we were kids. I don't remember that at all. 
That wasn't what my mom and dad taught us. Uh, The focus was much more on Jesus. We learned to say the prayer, Hail Mary, etc., but it was very, very different. It's important to, to realize that not all Catholics feel the same way about Mary, but some Catholics talk about Mary as though Mary is effectively the same as God. Okay, now what I'm going to play for you is this is a presentation, a speech that Jim Kavitzel, it seems like, even though it doesn't show the audience in the video clip, you can find it online, but he's speaking before what sounds like a Catholic audience about all of the symbolism in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ and all the Marian symbolism and Mary as co-mediatrix. And I want you to hear what he says, because there's no question. And I, I want you to bear in mind the difference between the movie The Passion versus the film Sound of Freedom. In the movie The Passion, there's no question. Mel Gibson and apparently Jim Caviezel were communicating all of these Catholic ideas through the film The Passion. If you find something where Jim Caviezel gives a presentation that he's doing the same thing through Sound of Freedom, let me know. Uh, When I saw The Passion, it was obvious that all this symbolism was going on, even though I might not have understood all of it while I was watching it. There's enough there that you know this is not what's recorded in the New Testament. Okay? So that's the difference. If they were communicating Mormonism, Mormon theology, or... Mariology or Mariolatry, etc., through Sound of Freedom, I would have the same view. All right, so having said that, let me play now this audio of Jim Kavitzel talking specifically about the symbolism that Mel Gibson wove into the film The Passion of the Christ. Listen. The Passion reveals the obvious very obvious biblical truth that Mary, like no other, shared in the suffering of her son as co-redemptrix. As St. Teresa of Calcutta exclaimed, of course Mary is the co-redemptrix. She gave Jesus his body and the offering of his body is what saved us. The scenes of the Passion profoundly depict Our Lady's role as co-redemptrix with Jesus. In fact, a well-known Italian journalist stated that the Passion of the Christ could also have been justifiably called the story of Mary co-redemptrix. For example, in the film, it is Mary alone who understands when Jesus has been arrested that, quote, it has begun. What has begun? The unified mission of Jesus, the Redeemer, and Mary, the co-redemptrix to redeem the world. When Mary walks the way of the cross with Jesus, she stands opposite Satan. She is his opponent. Mary's role with Jesus to crush the head of Satan is powerfully dramatized. In the Calvary scene, the dying Redeemer gives his own mother to become the spiritual mother of all peoples. When he says from the cross, behold your mother, 
John 19.27. In the final scene, Mary becomes a living Pieta, holding the dead body of her divine son. She looks to us all as our loving co-redemptrix who suffered in union with Jesus and calls us all to appreciate the price of our redemption. There are a lot of deep theological truths that Mel Gibson wove into the passion of the Christ. In this chaotic, confused age, ladies and gentlemen, we need truth. Yes, praise the Lord. We agree. We do need truth, but we remember and uh, we point Jim Kavitzel and others who think the way that he does toward the scripture, uh, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. When Jesus prayed to the Father, he said, Thy word is truth. The word of God is true. The Bible says, Let God be true and every man a liar. And we ought to obey God rather than men. And Jesus also warns, they do worship me in vain, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And we are also reminded of 1 Timothy 2.5, which says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Praise the Lord. Okay, now I'm going to play a little bit more of Jim Kavitzel's uh, speech here. But before I do, I want to provide some context. This whole idea of Mary as co-mediatrix has been a debate within the Catholic Church for years. And they have been pushing, the Mariolaters have been pushing for the Pope to make an official declaration that Mary is co-mediatrix with Christ. However, up to now, the popes have not been willing to do it. And that provides some context for what you're about to hear, because Jim Kavitzel in this message goes on to call for the pope to make an official declaration of Mary as the co-mediatrix. So, listen. And it is true that Mary is the co-redemptrix, mediatrix of all graces, an advocate for all humanity. It is my hope, it is my prayer, that the Pope will proclaim this truth as a Marian dogma, so that every single living human being will know that they have a spiritual mother that loves them, and who will intercede to bring them to Jesus, their true Savior. Now, why is this necessary? If the truth of Mary is already the truth, why does it need a papal proclamation? Well, look at the moment in Scripture when Jesus asked the apostles, Who do they say that I am? Ladies and gentlemen, believe me when I say to you, Jesus was not having an identity crisis. He knew who he was, but he wanted the truth proclaimed. When Simon Peter announced the truth, that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, then and only then, that Jesus found the church and the papacy on the rock of Peter, the first pope. I believe Jesus wants the full truth about his mother Mary. 
that she is this world's spiritual mother. She is the co-redemptrix. She is the mediatrix to be proclaimed by the present Pope so that our mother can utilize her full power of intercession to bring peace, true peace, to the world. All right, so there we can see that Jim Kavitzel is completely dedicated to the whole concept of, the, of Mary, the Roman Catholic Mary, as co-mediatrix, co-redemptrix, really giving her this, what I consider to be a mythological or really paganized version of Mary. I believe it is a manifestation of what we read about in the book of Jeremiah when the children of Israel were worshiping the queen of heaven. We read about that in the Old Testament. And of course, it was something that God condemned. Uh, But there's a very close association in the uh, veneration, acknowledgement, or worship of Mary with the Jesuit order right from the beginning. And so if you, in fact, let me read just from a couple of different websites here. Uh, From the website Ignatius 500 Global, that's one where it says, quote, in his spiritual diary, Ignatius called the Virgin gate and part of grace. She is the gate. Therefore, Ignatius always wanted to hear from her, first of all. So this appears to be the origin of the idea that you have to go through Mary to get to Jesus. It appears that it was the Jesuits who developed this idea. And that would be somewhere around 1540 onward. If anybody knows of a Catholic order or teaching that introduced that idea prior to Ignatius Loyola, by all means, send me an email. I'd love to know about it. But I've never seen it any earlier than the Jesuits themselves. And this whole idea of Mary as the gate of grace, which is to say, She's the gate of salvation then, because we're saved by God's grace. Okay. Then you have the Office of Ignatian Spirituality, which says, quote, On April 22nd, 1541, St. Ignatius and his companions took their solemn vows as members of the recently approved society. They pronounced their vows in the Basilica of St. Paul in Rome before an image of Mary. Today, Jesuits celebrate April 22nd as the Feast of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of the Society of Jesus. So, Mary is considered the Mother of the Society of Jesus. The Jesuits, in fact, Ignatius Loyola is referred to on one Catholic website as a Knight of Mary. A Knight of Mary. And so this is something to look out for as as we're seeing somebody like Jim Kavitzel promoting this idea of having the Pope, who's now a Jesuit. You have a Jesuit Pope, Pope Francis. Is it possible that one of the things that they are planning here in the not-too-distant future is to make an official declaration through Pope Francis that Mary is co-mediatrix with Jesus Christ? That should be an interesting thing to watch for. Uh, it's, it's important to remember now as a Protestant, when 
you have Catholics telling you that they are part of supposedly the most ancient form of Christianity with the Roman Catholic Church, nothing could be farther from the truth. Because all of these doctrines, in fact, most of the doctrines that they promote that are exclusively Catholic, don't show up for the first thousand years of church history. And the things like the Hail Mary, the prayer that they pray, is unheard of until you get to the 11th century. The final form of the prayer, as they say it today, shows up in the 16th century. So, this the the views about Mary as co-mediatrix and that you have to go through Mary to get to Jesus and stuff like that, all of that stuff is unheard of for the first thousand years of church history. And I would say remember that because you'll have biblical arguments with Catholics and debates and things like that. And I think, of course, we should be gracious and and friendly whenever we have those debates. But sometimes there'll be historic debates, and they try to argue that Protestantism or evangelicalism begins with Martin Luther, and our response should always be, no, it actually begins with the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it begins with the New Testament. That is where Protestant evangelical Christianity began. And Romanism shows up hundreds of years later, centuries later. All right, we are out of time. That is going to do it for us today. That is our show. We will stop it there, but we will be back next time as the Lord leads us. Until then, God bless you guys. I'm Chris Pinto, and you've been listening to Noise of Thunder Radio. Noise of Thunder Radio.